Good morning, His People Church. My name is Awoink Mbangi. I'm one of the leaders here at our church, and it is my pleasure this morning to be bringing the word. Um, Pastor Jacques and Jenny are not around. They are on holiday, uh, taking some time to rest, which is so important. Um, I'm happily married uh, to my wife, Lumelo. Um, our church administrator, and God has blessed us with two uh, beautiful kids and one on the way. And by that, I don't mean she's pregnant. I just mean uh, uh, we are trusting God for another one, whenever that time is. <laughs> um, so today, um, I, 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 I'm going to start by playing a video that Susan Tokozo had shared with us uh, a while back. And I've just really been thinking about the contents of that video as it applies to us believers and the church in general and really felt the Lord, yeah, to speak into that um, this morning. And so I'll start by asking Amo to just cue the video for us and, and we'll take it from there. Martyrs Free Church in Edinburgh, part of the history of Christianity in Scotland. Today it's Frankenstein, which describes itself as both a family-friendly venue and a place for stag parties and bar-top dancers. This is St. Paul's Church in Bristol, England. It's now a school for circus performers. And in Linera, Spain, the Church of Santa Barbara is now Chaos Temple, a skateboard park. But before you get angry with the owners of Frankenstein, understand that Europe today has more empty church buildings than it knows what to do with. Because Europe is by and large no longer Christian. These are the remnants of a lost civilization, Christian civilization. It was once at the very heart of European life and culture. Those days are long gone. Among the British, belief in the Christian God has plummeted. The, the trajectory is very clear. And something like 70, 75% of British under 30s said they have no religion. Theologian Stephen Bullivant, author of Mass Exodus, says Europe's move away from Christianity is accelerating. People often ask me, especially in the Catholic Church, it's kind of, you know, what can we do to kind of bring everyone back, you know? And half serious, I, I always say, well, invest in time machine technology. The data is clear. Christianity in Europe is, is, is dying. Dr. Harvey Quiani, professor of African Christianity and theology at Liverpool Hope University, is from the Christian nation of Malawi. He says moving to what he calls Britain's pagan culture was a shock. Growing up in Africa, growing up in Malawi, um, Christianity is, is, is exploding. The median age of an African Christian is 19 coming to Europe. These are post-Christian people. They have moved away from Christianity. I teach students who would tell me uh, I'm a third, fourth generation pagan in my family. God is still moving in Europe, but the larger culture has been lost. And although some governments might still be officially Christian, they are now openly persecuting Christians. What is hard for people in America to understand is that people in Great Britain really have no notion of what Christianity is. Attorney Andrea Williams of Christian Concern in London spends much of her time defending clients like Christian doctor David Makareth, who, because of his Christian beliefs, refused to call a transgender man a woman and was fired. 
in essence, I'm now being compelled to say things which I cannot say. But when I'm told to call a man a woman, or call a woman a man, they're pushing my conscience where it cannot go because I could not serve my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and do that. It's the same story for Christians across Europe. In Finland, a Christian member of parliament faces possible prison time for simply tweeting Bible verses that condemn homosexuality. And Bullivant warns it will probably get worse as Europe returns to its pagan roots. At the end of that road, culturally, I think, is, is, is probably 80, 90 percent no religion. And so to convince them to, to pay attention to Christianity again is, is a challenge. Only a radical revival can can change that, but if we don't, then it's going to get darker yet. There is hope for Europe, and it could be in something missions leaders call the blessed reflex. It was the prayer of early missionaries like William Carey and David Livingston that one day the gospel would return from the mission fields of Africa and Asia to re-evangelize Europe. And there are signs the blessed reflex has already begun. Dale Hurd, CBN News, London. Sure. So I don't know what you make of that, but as I listened and watched to that video, one of the first things that came to my mind was, are we next? You know, uh, are we next? Are we staring down the barrel of a post-Christian society? You can go ahead. Are we next in terms of, you know, a dying Christianity in our society? Are we next in terms of, you know, empty church buildings? You can go on. Are we next in terms of persecution of Christians? And one of the disturbing things for me was the picture or the advertisement of the statement in a public uh, transportation. It says there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And laced into that is a lot of lies. And really the first one is, you, you know, the idea that the existence of God, okay, you can, you can stay on the, on the previous slide. The existence of God is something to be worried about. You know, and the second one is, you know, the notion that life <laughs> with God cannot be something to be enjoyed. You know, it cannot be something that we derive pleasure and satisfaction from. You know, and, and, and thirdly, it's, it's, it's what I've mentioned, that this is displayed in a public space. And I'm thinking about my, my three-year-old daughter or someone's three-year-old daughter, four-year-old daughter, who stands every day, every morning and evening in that bus stop with their parent, and they're reading this statement that there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. And that is something planted in their minds as early as whatever age they start taking that bus. And the fourth is really that there's someone who actually paid money for that advertisement to be put out there. Because I don't see any product being advertised there. I don't see any name of any company. But there is someone who's paid money to have this advertised in public transportation. And really that should really alarm certain things in our lives that the enemy that we have is not asleep, you know? 
And this really got me thinking and reflecting on the influence of the church in my own life, both before I found and met Jesus and after, and, and really what that journey has meant or what, what value has the church had in my life. And, and as I was thinking about, about that, two weeks back, Pastor Jacques um, ended his sermon with a question and the question was, what is your testimony of Jesus? And, and I thought that would be my, my title, but I, I just decided to change it a bit to say, what is, what is my, my testimony of the church, my testimony of, of the body of Christ? And that's my title today. And obviously, you can't talk about the church and not talk about Jesus and vice versa, because Jesus is the head of the church. You know, we, 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 are, we are name bearers of him. We are called Christians which means little anointed ones taken from the great anointed one who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I just took time to reflect and, and I, real, I realized that uh, I just wanted this morning to share a bit of my story uh, and challenging you as well to reflect on your story and the impact uh, that the church has had in your life. And I just want to also make clarity that when I, when I speak of the church, I'm not talking about church leaders, I'm not talking about buildings necessarily. I'm talking about the body of Christ. I'm talking about the body of Christians that have, I've walked my path and have somehow influenced my life in how I've taken decisions as an adult and in how I've lived my life and applied whatever it is that they have taught or have influenced me towards as, as, I, as I stand here. And um, so, so my first encounter with the church was at home. Um, my parents were, were Christian, so as far as I can remember, I was born in a Christian home. I, I, I don't really remember when they were saved. Uh, I, I don't remember us having that conversation, but I remember from the time I was little, I remember just that my parents were saved. And, 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 and so church at home was a big part of, of home life. And, and my parents were strict as well. And I, I remember I used to think as a child, I wonder if they are strict because they're Christian or they're Christian because they're strict. I just couldn't make out exactly which one was it. And, 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 and from home, you know, the next experience is obviously the local church and the cell groups that used to happen at our house. And I, used, I, I remember so clearly that I hated every moment of church life, both at home, cell group, and at church. And, and one of my reasons for hating it, it was because it always felt like something that was loaded upon me, something that I didn't have a, a choice to choose. It never felt like it was a choice that I had made for myself. It always felt like something that was decided on my behalf, and I did not have any influence to, 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 to choose otherwise or influence it in any way. And I also remember a lot about how you know, external behavioral modification was really something that was championed or celebrated in a way, not intentionally though, because my parents wanted, you know, the culture I grew up in, you know, how you spoke, how you dressed up, how you walked was so important compared to a, a real deep heart transformation that sometimes is not so visible in the outside. And I remember uh, being a young person and having these conflicts um, in, internally and also just using uh, you know as you grow up you start seeing the humanity in your parents and I remember 
growing up and starting to use my parents' imperfection as a way to reject God and everything they had taught. I don't know if you remember as a child or in any household, normal that is, you know, drinking milk out of the container is a no-no because you share that with everyone. And so that was something, things like that were things at home that were very, you know, we knew about those. That's, and then the funny thing is, the day you find your parent doing the same, <laughs> and then what happens is there's no discussion about that. You can't, you're not in a position to say, what are you doing? But they know that you know that, you know, it went down. <laughs> so using such things and really as a way to, yeah, as a way to, to, to sort of, yeah, encourage my thoughts and my rejection of what God, you know, the pursuit of God in my life. And, you know, if you're an adult or you're a child and you grew up in a house, you've probably heard your parents tell a lie once. Maybe a friend comes over and they say, no, I didn't hear about that, but you know exactly that they were just on a phone call and they heard about You know those kind of things, when you really start to see your parents, that they're human and not these perfect beings, sometimes you know, we, we grow up to think they are. And you, I use that as, as, as a way of saying, no, this thing is not consistent, you know, something is, all of those kind of things. And I remember growing up at home, leaving home to university, and really never walking back to a church, even when I went home for holidays, you know. I'd sometimes make sure on Saturdays I sleep out and then come back home around 10, past 10, when I know my parents have left for church. And as a means of, because now I feel like I'm an adult, I'm responsible for my, my life, so I do not need anyone telling me what to do. And the change for me really happened when I, I, I started working. So university for me was almost like an extended high school because the same group of people I went to high school with, I went to university with. So it never felt like a strange place. It always felt like it was familiar. I had cousins who had been doing their third and fourth years when I arrived. So, and I also studied in the same province that I grew up. So the language was the same. There was nothing about it that was a culture shock. I knew what needed to be done. You pass, you have fun, but you also balance with the books so that you can pass and leave. And so I started working in a new province, a new language, no friends, just being alone a lot of the time. And I started thinking a lot about the meaning of life and what, you know, I started just reassessing, you know, how I grew up and how is it that I'm here and what influences had happened or had influenced me to be the person who I was. And, and I started really finding myself opening up to the idea of God. And, and as I started doing that, I came to a realization of my sinfulness as a person and that I can never be a good person without Jesus. And, and I accepted God. And in the process of doing that, a lot of things that I had held so dear and true and had been a comfort to me in rejecting God's pursuit in my life, it all started to change. And I'll just share a few of those things, you know. I started just reflecting in how my parents firstly raised me. You know, um, the word strict is sometimes used to mean people or parents that are uncool and that are rigid and all of those things. And I started comparing my strict parents to other parents who I found cool growing up. And because the proof is in the pudding. I started comparing my, my brother's life, my life, my sister's life to those parents who, were, who I, I thought were cool and how their children turned out in life. And, and, and the reality of the things were very stark. You know, in my household, you know, there were, the children were not, 
the authority to give. Children were not going to do as they please. There was, there were, there was a way of doing things and we all had to follow that in order to keep the, the peace and whatever. And I started looking at my father. My father was a, he's a policeman and he's done that job for the, most, for the most part of his working life. And I realized something that, you know, my father spent most of his working life putting young boys to prison and locking them up. And how it, I, I just wondered how it must have felt for him every time he had to take someone else's son. To, and how that, you know, in terms of thinking about, I have my, fa my father's first three kids were, were boys. And how in his actions that I had thought were maybe a bit much, maybe some of those things were driven by the fear of seeing how ill-discipline and lack of values in young people can really wreck and cause a, a train smash over their lives. You know, I, I started realizing that I was expecting a perfection from my parents, a perfection from Christianity, from Christians, sorry, that only Christ can give. Because we are all not perfect people. We are just following a perfect God. You know, I started just noticing certain things also just in the world in general, you know, about how you know, when you compare countries where Christianity is the predominant, you know, um, religion, you find there's a lot of freedom that the people of, that, of those countries enjoy. And, and how you, you look at things like that, you look at the most vulnerable people in our societies, which is a lot of the time the women and children. You know, I was just reading something, I remember, I think it was last year, that it was only recently in some countries in the Middle East that women were allowed to drive cars. You know, I also th thought about people like Nelson Mandela, who, you know, we all know his political life, but some of the things we don't know about him, that him, I think him and Sisulu started the first black uh, law firm in Africa. And, and it was all because of the education that he had received from missionaries, a young boy growing up in Eastern Cape, you know, in rural, deep Eastern Cape, where sometimes you had to travel and walk kilometers to go to school. You know, started thinking about even education um, institutions like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford, Cambridge, all of those, if you look at the history, those were started by Christian men and women. And to this day, you know, the motto of Princeton um, um, University is, under God's protection, she flourishes. You know, and how, as we are moving on with life, how as we keep removing Christ, as we keep removing the church from institutions of education, as you know, engineering and politics, as we remove Jesus, as we remove the church, the moral decay seems to be happening so much faster. The corruption seems to be happening so much faster compared to when those institutions were still heavily influenced by men and women who revered Christ, who revered God. And and, and I, I say all of this not to excuse some of the atrocities that Christian man or the, ch or the church has, has, has sometimes been found wanting in. I'm not in any way excusing that. But I think what I'm trying to say is, in my assessment of the influence of the church and its impact in our societies, when I weigh it up on the scales, I find more that their influence has been more positive than has, it has been negative. You know, in most cities I have lived in, there's always a street that is called Church Street. And I wondered why, because 
you'd find that in that same street there was a brothel, there was a bottle store that had been there as long as the church has. But the difference really is that the church has had a, a positive influence. People don't name streets you know, after things that are taking away from society. People give names of commemoration uh, to remember people and things and times, organizations that have had a positive influence in, in uplifting the community and growing the community. And, and I come from a township and, 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 and I've seen the influence that churches have had in, in really the, the life of the community. And, and, and really the, the, the second question that I asked myself after watching that video was, so what do we do today to ensure that in 100 years from now, CBN News doesn't make the same video that we've just seen about our church building here, about church buildings in South Africa. And really God took me to um, Hebrews uh, 3, uh, 12, uh, verse 14. Uh, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Excuse me. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original convictions firmly to the very end. And one of the things I highlighted there from that scripture is unbelief. Um, Romans 1, verse 13. I just want to read that. Romans 1 verse 13 says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times, oh sorry, Romans 1 16, sorry, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And one of the things that I feel like God was encouraging was that we must never come, in our advancement as human beings and in our, you know, acquiring knowledge and making lots of advances in education and engineering and all these things. We must never come to the realize or the, the decision or, 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 yeah, I don't know what to call it, but we must never come to that mindset that there could ever be any substitution for the problem of sin in humanity. No amount of knowledge, no amount of anything can substitute uh, the, 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 the problem of sin except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, it says to encourage one another. And in, in 2 Timothy, it says that, we, sorry, in Hebrews 10, 25, it says that we must not neglect or ignore 
the gathering of believers. And it is when we, an encouraging to one another daily happens when we are in each other's faces, we are praying for each other, we are seeing each other regularly and, and, and speaking about and calling out each other in terms of the, the things that God has placed in us and, and calling us up and all of those things. And one of my concerns about the times that we live in is that it's so easy for us to then, as Christians, to, to decide to live our Christian life vicariously through big ministries that have big online presence and sit at home and, and be isolated and just enjoy being part of church through online. And I know that we encourage people who are not yet ready to come and meet. I do understand the, the times that we live in and I do respect people's decisions to, 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 to take it easy and, and to see what happens before engaging in normal activity. But I remember reading something from Pastor, Pastor Steve Merrill and, and, and Pastor Roger last year, I think he mentioned the same thing, that online church is not a substitution for us meeting regularly, in-person meetings and sharing in each other's lives and really just breaking bread and fellowshipping. And, and so I, 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 feel like, uh, to, to, I feel like it's important that we, we, we guard against things of comfort that really take away from our faith as opposed to adding to it. You know, in, in, in when, they, when they speak about end times and, 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 and not very well vested in, in specifics, but one of the things that's very clear about the end times is that deception is the mode that will be used by the enemy to take away from Christians. And uh, three weeks back, we heard Cass and Pastor Jacques uh, share on the temptations of Jesus. And when you read and you listen to those sermons, you know, when Jesus was tempted, it was not a blatant lie that was told. It was something close to the truth as possible. And that's how people get deceived. People get deceived by allowing things that are not quite truth, but are very close to it, permeating their lives. And so I believe it's very important for us to, to be ready and guard and be realized and not be ignorant of the enemy's devices as he tries to take away and steal from us. Also just want to read 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. Um, So it reads as follows. It says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So I really pray that we do not become deceived from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ and be aware that deception takes place very cunningly. It's not as blatant as we think it does. And I feel like I want to end with, with, with this. You can go to the next slide. Uh, sorry, the, the second scripture I felt God led me was 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. It says, you have heard me teach things 
that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. One of the things I like about this scripture is that it's, it, it, it speaks to multiple generations. This is Paul writing to Timothy, telling Timothy to take everything that he has learned from him and teach it to reliable people who are to teach it to others. If you would count, there's four generations of people that this message is supposed to be passed on to. And I believe that's how we ensure that the body of Christ, as we see what is happening and the onslaught on the church in Europe, that's how we guard against that happening in our own community here. And not to actually speak about Europe as a far place because the churches in Europe is also part of the church in South Africa because we are, we are really essentially the same body. And when part of the body is not well, you know, the whole body isn't. So we need to pray for those Christians and the believers and the strengthening of, of God to happen and the revival that needs to happen there. While ensuring also that here where we live, you know, God is not forgotten. God is not taken out of the equation. And man's, you know, intelli intelligence in, in things does not replace the power of God. And I also want to end, as I said, with the last slide. This is a picture of Rito, who is one of our students. And Rito, a few years back, when we were having campus, campus conference sorry, in Joburg, you know, at the end of the conference, there was a call for people who had felt, in one way or another, a call to serve God in full-time ministry. And she was one of our students that stood up that day and was prayed for. And, and, and that was a while back, and, and she, I think it was Sasa at the time, just helped her process uh, that, 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 that time of praying into her. And this year she has taken, she has asked to, to sort of serve the church uh, as she finishes her, deg as her, her degree. And it is something I want us to celebrate and pray for her as well. Because for as long as we have young people who are still taking such decisions about their lives, because serving church, God, in full-time ministry is not an easy thing. It means you are laying down some of the things that you have always grown to believe you become. You are laying down some of the dreams that your parents who educated you and raised you had for you. You know, you're laying all of that down and saying, God, I'd like to do this, you know. And it's not a, it's not a, a decision or a sacrifice that should be taken lightly. And there's no pressure to her. If she feels she just wants to serve this year, and that's it, that's what we'll honor. It is still, it's her decision to make. It's between her and God. What we try to do is open a space where she can flesh that out and see um, yeah, and just see, and just see for herself. So I just, want, I, I just wanted to intentionally celebrate that because we need to see more of that for the church to continue advancing in our society, for the church to continue being alive and not die in South Africa and Africa. And so I would like us to stretch our hands and ask Rita to please stand and just pray for her. And if you have a word for her, please do give it to her. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for for your power. We thank you, Lord, that you still move in our lives. We don't take that for granted. We thank you, Father, for the power of the gospel that has transformed our lives. And we stand here today being able to testify not about how wise we are, but about how we have been forgiven, about how we have been given identity. So, Lord, we just bless Rito. We just bless 
all that she stands for. We just bless, Lord Father, this decision that you've taken to serve you, Lord. We pray, oh Father, that you, you, you just, yeah, just she, just, that she, oh, she walks under an open heaven, oh Father. We thank you, Father, that those times of sowing into your kingdom will never be in vain, oh Father. We pray for her children, Lord, generations to come after her to be blessed, oh Father, in Jesus' mighty name. We just also thank you, Lord God, for giving us the church, for giving us each other, Lord God, to live this Christian life, oh Father. We just pray, oh Father, against the, the devices of the enemy, Lord Father. We pray that we be people who are not ignorant, people who are not negligent, Lord Father, to, to, to knowledge, to the truth, oh Father, that we have our eyes open and be ready, Lord Father, for you are coming, Lord God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.